throughout Ecclesiastes, we have been invited to hear the words of Earth's reporter, to hear the words of someone who has, through wisdom, sought to understand all that is in the world, all that is, um, all that is under the sun, and we have been invited to engage in that awkward dance of taking that, that awkward sigh of resignation with him as he looks around and studies and sees and encounters what's under the sun and goes, this is absurd. And not only that, as I said in my introduction to the series some many weeks ago, when all is said and all is done, when the final analysis of Ecclesiastes is written in Ecclesiastes 12, the one who put the book together, the narrator, the one who's offering these words, doesn't reject the findings of Koheleth. He doesn't say he's wrong. He doesn't say he's unorthodox. He doesn't say he's out of bounds. He says, these are wise words. And what we have said over and over again is that the words of Ecclesiastes are fit words, but they're not final words. The wisdom of Ecclesiastes is not incorrect. It is simply incomplete. And that's okay. And then as sometimes preachers do, he goes from preaching to meddling. And he starts talking about the church. This on a day that we recognize the Reformation, the day that we recognize um, how God has preserved his church. That is all well and good. But everyone look at me for just a second. Every single person in this room has experienced at some point in their life the yeah right of the church. You know what I'm talking about. You have seen leaders make bad mistakes that have had unintended consequences to a lot of people. You have been hurt by gossip. You have been hurt by by people who use words in ways that God would never have his people use words. You have been disillusioned by the very thing that God has said is supposed to be our refuge in the storm. And so the storm comes, the tents are flying. I can't go in there, it's just as bad in there as it is out here. Years ago, I was given a book by Julia Dewan, who was at that point the religion editor of the Washington Post. At that point, I thought I was just a friend giving me a book because it was on my Amazon wish list, and that's how these things work. You put things on your wish list, your friends get them for you. That's a lovely thing. The name of the book was called Quitting Church. What I didn't realize at the time was it was my friend's not-so-subtle way of telling me just that. They're quitting church. Maybe some of you have thought about that too, that you'd be better off weathering it on your own than dealing with this uh, sometimes cantankerous, sometimes ornery, definitely imperfect thing that God has said is supposed to be the refuge in the storm. 
Beloved, this morning, Ecclesiastes, here is your groan and groans with you. There are imperfect things about the church. There's a complicated conversation that we need to have about it. So let's consider these seven verses from Ecclesiastes 5. Stand, if you would, and hear God's word. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, it is by your grace that you have invited us to understand and know the common condition of humanity with our neighbors, with one another. The wisdom offered here is not the final word, but it is the first word we must understand. The church is messy. And we've experienced it, and we've been hurt by it, and we've been perhaps disillusioned by it. To help us today to speak both honestly to what we've experienced, but also speak truthfully to nevertheless what your scripture says is true. We need your help in doing these things, and so we make these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated if you would. Do you remember the phrase that Steve taught you last week? You were to look at your neighbor, and you were to ask him a very simple, honest question. How's that working for you? Last week, the question was about work. How's work working for you? This week, it's about the church. How's the church working for you? And I don't want you to give me the right answer. And I want you to give, you this, give me the Sunday school answer, the catechism answer. Can we have that honest conversation today? Because if we don't, we're kind of like the, the, the children's story, the emperor's new clothes. Walking around thinking we have this glorious outfit on when everyone else can see we have no clothes on at all. If we're not willing to step into and talk about the complicated conversation that is the church, her glories and her imperfections, we don't do ourselves any favors because the world can see it. Our neighbors can see it. We can see it too. One of the things that is the critique that we need to hear is offered right here from the words of the preacher in Ecclesiastes 5 Fools, 
fools run rampant in the church. Now, what is the Bible's definition of wisdom? Well, its opposite is foolishness, right? A lot of times, pride and foolishness are the same person. A fool is someone, that they, is someone who cannot see what they are doing before God. Oftentimes walking in pride, oftentimes walking in unbelief. And Ecclesiastes says that fools run rampant in the church. And, and our neighbors have seen this, right? For some of our neighbors, what they have seen is a place that is holier than thou. You must be this, to- this holy in order to ride. Where the church is a place not with its doors open, but a place with a passcode on the door. Not seeking to enlarge its ranks, but shrink them. And our neighbors look at the church and say, I would never be welcome there. Much like that great story in 2 Samuel 9, where David, out of his great love for Jonathan, seeks to bless someone from Jonathan's house. And they bring to David Mephibosheth, the lame uh, servant of Jonathan, and when Mephibosheth hears that David has, um, has interest in, in his presence, Mephibosheth says, why is it that the king would have interest in a dead dog such as me? And friends, listen, our neighbors feel this. Our neighbors feel their own inadequacy. They see their own self-salvation projects as miserably failing But instead of the church rolling out a welcome mat saying that this is the place where Jesus invites sinners to come and find grace and refuge, instead, you must be this tall to ride and you must know the secret phrase to get in. Still others of our neighbors have experienced something different. They don't see their own sin. They see simply people who have professed to be Christians, to be changed, to be different to be put together, and then have some sort of, well, human moment where they still sin, they still mess up, they still fail in thought and word and deed, both by what they've done and by what they've left undone. And our neighbors reject God and reject the church because they say the church is full of nothing but hypocrites. And it's true. All of it's true, isn't it? If we look around, we have said that there are people that are not welcome, where the church has become more in some people's minds, the church has become a refuge to stay unstained from the world rather than a place that is going out on God's rescue mission to draw near to the world just as Jesus is drawn near to us. So the church becomes some sort of clean room, some sort of bunker. Still in other cases, 
Our neighbors have not seen the gospel because they've not seen a people who daily, desperately need the grace and mercy of Jesus, who walk in humility and walk in neediness and walk in recognition that I am not who I am supposed to be, but Jesus is for me. What they've seen instead is a parade of fools. And if you and I are being really Really honest. We've been that fool once or twice ourselves. We've been the one that would rather keep people out than invite people in. We've been the ones that have, uh, out of shame or out of regret or out of pride, have been the ones that have tried to spin our mistakes and make excuses for them. preacher sees this. He's he's not surprised that there are fools in the church, and frankly, neither is Jesus. Jesus gave us a parable that showed us that in the same field grows both wheat and weeds, and you ultimately won't know which is which until the harvest comes. Verse 1 talks about the first kind of foolishness that happens in the church, It's the foolishness of making trivial the worship and the work of the church. So so how is it that those drawing near to the house of God trivialize what's being done in it? They're doing evil, but they don't know they're doing evil. Look at verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they don't know that they're doing evil. They don't know that they don't know. They're just going on, um, engaged in life as they see fit. Um, And that's either by one of two things. They either make insignificant things significant, right? You've experienced this. It's not the right color paint. It's not the right color carpet. It's not the right flavored coffee. The pastor doesn't dress the way you want. The people don't dress the way you want. The people make noise you don't want. You make insignificant things significant and make a big deal out of it. Or, on the flip side, you take significant things. That This is the place. This is a divine, this place, this time, this occasion is a divine intersection of heaven and earth where God graciously condescends to his people by his spirit and his people are lifted into the courts of the heavenlies along with the angels and the archangels and all of those around the world and throughout the ages that even now declare holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That that is this time and that is this space. And instead of making that a significant time, we make it an insignificant time. And the writer to Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes says, this is foolishness. This is foolishness. Sometimes foolishness is busyness. We think that if we're filling our days with churchy things and activities and words, that this equates with living near to the heart of God. But look at what he says in verses 2 and 3. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. 
This too can be absurdity. This can be vanity because Jesus said in, um, in the gospel of Matthew that there will come a day when there will be those who will cry, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things in your name? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. They were doing the things of God without being connected to the heart of God. They had borne on their lips God's name, but their hearts themselves were far off. And so just as there is a foolishness of busyness that can keep us shallow and distant while doing the things of God, there's a foolishness of busyness that can keep us shallow and distant because we're staying away from the household and the people of God. Eugene Peterson, who, uh, who died last week, um, has been very, a very influential voice in, in my life and a lot of other pastors that I know. Um, in one of his books, The Contemplative Pastor, he writes this about the busy pastor. He says of the busy pastor that you're arrogant and you're lazy. That markets well. Um, he says to the busy pastor, you're arrogant and you're lazy. You're arrogant because you feel like you need the approval of everybody else. And so you're afraid to say no. You're afraid to, to actually do the things that are essential in your life. And you fill your day and your calendar up with non-essential things. You're arrogant. And he said, you're lazy. You're lazy because you let other people get to your calendar before you get to your calendar. Now, Peterson was writing in, the, in a time when the, uh, the only thing that you had uh, go, you know, the only alarm you had in your pocket was your daytimer, right? And he said, even then, if you were writing, if, you were to call, if someone were to call my office and I were to say to them, oh, I can't meet, you, meet with you right now, I need to study or I need to pray, People say, oh, you can do that another time. My needs are much more important. But if you simply say, no, I'm sorry, I can't meet you right now. I have another appointment. They'll say, oh, I understand. It's on the calendar. My mistake. The busy pastor is arrogant and lazy. And undergirding all of that was the assumption that what we need to be doing, praying in deeply in the word of God, is essential to our ministry. All the other things that we do with people, with administrative tasks, with whatever, those things are secondary to being in the Word and in prayer. So, how do we approach the life and the ministry of the church? Do we understand that this gathering together of God's people, hearing the word of God declared, preached, proclaimed, is essential to our lives, not merely periphery or optional? And then the question becomes, who's getting to our calendars first? God or us? You see, there's a foolishness of busyness that can keep us away from the people of God. And parents, listen, listen, I'm not trying to give you a complex. You've already got enough of those. But listen, the patterns that you are setting now will be normative for your kids when they're adults. The patterns that you're setting now will be normative for your kids when they're adults. 
That's why I still freak out when my family's not together at the dinner table at six o'clock every evening. It's not because it's sacred. It's because that's what was normal for me. And I fear that my kids are not going to experience that rhythm of gathering together at the family dinner table at night. Well, friends, when we're only in the house of God once a month or every six weeks or whatever the case may be, sometimes there's good reasons for that and sometimes there's not. You're normalizing something for your kids. And there's a busyness that can be a foolishness that can keep us away from the people of God. Just like there's a busyness and a foolishness that can keep us among the people of God, yet still far from the heart of God. Foolishness is pride. It's, it's a lack of humility. Sometimes, um, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes church people wound non-church people. Now, I know it's all the rage these days to talk about the church being the ones who are persecuted. And that's probably true in some parts of the world. But frankly, there are some times, too, when church people are the ones not being persecuted, but doing the persecuting and are the ones that are doing the wounding in Jesus' name, thinking that Jesus himself would be satisfied, nay, even glad that we're standing up for something. There are many times more than should ever be named where the people of God have done horrific things in the name of God, all while presuming that the things that have been done are pleasing in God's sight. So there's a lack of humility that can come. There's also a, a walking as if we know better than God does. Look at what he says in verses four through five. It says, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. Um, it's better that you should not vow than you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. So when I'm do when I do premarital counseling with a couple who's getting ready to get married, um, one of the things that I do is try and strongly strong. I mean really emphatically try and dissuade the newly engaged young loves from writing their own marital vows. A couple reasons to do this. One, um, you are not the poet that you think you are. Really, you're not. Um, and though um, all of these little inside phrases that you're speaking to your betrothed on the day of your wedding are super meaningful to you two. They're a little icky to the rest of us. There's another reason, though, why I really strongly discourage people from writing their own vows. Most of the time, when people write their own vows, their vows are about how they feel right now. The traditional vows of the church are not about how you feel right now. The traditional vows that typically take place in a marriage ceremony are, I will love you in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, until death departs us. 
The point about vows in a marriage ceremony is that you are not making, you're not talking about how you feel right now. You are making an appointment with your future self. That at that moment and at that time when stuff gets hard, because listen, the honeymoon is great. The honeymoon eventually ends. And then life gets real. And it's the same in the life of the church. The reason that membership is important, the reason that I love the vows that we use in membership is not because they talk about necessarily, though some of them do, about how you feel right now. You're making an appointment with your future self because sometimes, and I'm just going to go out on a limb here, sometimes the honeymoon even wears off in the life of the church. And sometimes people say hurtful things and sometimes people say hard things. And rather than, rather than go and find some other church, the vows are saying we're going to stay here and we're going to stick it out because we're family and that's what we do. Now, there are legitimate reasons. Please don't hear me saying there are not legitimate reasons to get out of a church. There can be a toxic culture. There can be toxic leadership. There can be other things that are happening that make it right to break those vows. I'm not talking about those situations. What I'm talking about is the kind of come and go and, and take your vows or not take your vows. And this is, this, is, this is foolishness. Because the honeymoon's always going to wear off. Whether it's in your marriage or in the life of the church, the honeymoon's going to always wear off. Everyone can feel amazing about someone or some place in the moment. It's when the moment passes and life gets hard, when things get complicated, that we need those future appointments with our present self. The vows here are that uh, you are vowing um, that you will support the worship and the work of the church to the best of your ability, that you will both now and in the future submit yourself to the government and the discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and its peace. You don't, you don't need these because we're trying to be draconian. We need these because we're human. And we don't like to do hard stuff. We want to do easy stuff. I had a friend of mine in business one time tell me that you don't need, no one needs contracts in business when everyone's making money. It's only when the revenue streams start getting tight that you start looking to the words of the contract to figure out who's exactly getting what. You don't need vows when everything's going well. You need vows when everything starts getting hard. And Ecclesiastes says, when you vow a vow to God, don't delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. It's when life and living gets hard, when people hurt our feelings, when we just don't feel like we're connecting anymore with the preaching or the music or the decor or the coffee or the seats or the parking lot, that we need to remember why those vows are there. We've all experienced. We've all experienced the crisis of, of the church not w- working the way that we expect it to work. Right. 
when people say insensitive things that are really incredibly hurtful, right? We've experienced all of this. And our neighbors have experienced this too. And this is where we don't have to come and make the church more than it is and say that it's somehow this great utopia, this, this heaven on earth. We also need to make sure that we don't make the church less than what it is either. It's Jesus' bride. The church is Jesus' bride. And I don't know how it is in your relationships, how it is with your spouse, but if you don't much care for my spouse, we don't have much of a, you and I don't have much of a friendship. You know? The church is a mess, and so are we. The church is a mess, and so are we. Some of us have made the church such a sacred space that we're aghast when those who would need the very Jesus that we preach would darken the doors of it. And some of us have made the church of such little import that it's an optional add-on to our lives, an extra multivitamin. If you remember to take it, it's nice, but it's not necessary. Now, some of you take your multivitamins religiously, and for you, I say, stop ruining it for the rest of us. The church is neither. The church is Jesus' bride. The church is the refuge in the storm. Not the building, not the denomination, but the people of God is the refuge in the storm. Some of us have made the church a place that we never stay connected to because things got hard, are hard. We're afraid things will get hard again. Once the honeymoon wanes, we, go, we grow disillusioned and disengaged. And dear friends, the church in all of its imperfection and its mess is still Jesus' bride. It's for her life he bought her and for her life he died. Because it is the community of faith that we need to have. But Ecclesiastes can only take us so far into that conversation. Even here in verse 2, he's not being incredibly pastoral here. Look at what he says back in verse 2. God is on heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Now, all the times, I'm pretty sure this is right, in all the times that the word God is used in Ecclesiastes, it is not Yahweh. It is not God's covenantal name. It is simply a generic word for God. Okay? Ecclesiastes cannot take you to the place of a personally revealed, personally uh, rescuing, ransoming, redeeming God. Okay? It's just God at a distance. We have to look to the rest of the scriptures to understand that God, in fact, drew near. That Jesus gave his life for the church. When Paul's talking about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, he's going on and saying, this is a profound mystery, this relationship between a husband and a wife. But what I'm talking about is Christ in the church. The marriage relationship of a husband and a wife was the closest analog that Paul could find in Ephesians chapter 5 for disclosing the mysteries of the union between Jesus and his church. 
But yet, even here in Ecclesiastes, there's still, even though there's a jadedness and there's a, um, there's a sadness, it is not um, if you go to church, it's when you go to the house of God. When you go. There's a deep mistrust that we have about the church, and yet we need it. I love this quote by uh, T.S. Eliot, where he says, Why should men love the church? Eliot says, Because she tells them of sin and death and other unpleasant facts of life they would as soon forget. As we spoke a few weeks ago, um, joy and sorrow, both... um, Um, a a dogged trust at what God is doing, and yet a frustration at the way things are, those things can exist in the same moment, in the same breath. And because both of them are there, it doesn't, it's not like in football, it's not offsetting penalties. They're both there. They're both true. We have to contend with that. Eugene Peterson, just, I've been, in a lot of his writings this week, um, I was struck by one of these bits of advice he was giving to a fellow minister down in Austin, Texas. Here's what he said about sticking it out with his church. He said, the church is not a good place. The church is not an ideal place. It's a lot of trouble. And you've got a lot of people to forgive and put up with but where else are you going to find anything better? And I think that's the struggle for us, isn't it? The struggle for us is that we presume that we have found the something better. We can stay at a safe distance from engaging with the people of God in the church because we've got our better thing. And Peterson says, It's not an ideal place. It's a lot of trouble. You're going to have a lot of people to forgive and put up with, but where are you going to find anything else better? The presumption implicit in Ecclesiastes and explicit in the rest of the scriptures is that we were made for community and we are going to seek out community in something and that the church, though it exists on this side of the sun with all of its adjacent complications is still the best thing going for us that there is. The counterpoint to foolishness is wisdom. And so how does one attend to the life of the church and to the life the church brings wisely? Here's the first thing I would would, uh, put before you is, again in verse 1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. To listen implies that there is a lack in us that we must see filled. There's a lack in us that must be filled. We must listen. We must receive first what God is going to speak to us and give to us and do in us. Rather than presuming our need and coming to God's house, expecting to dictate what our remedy should be to God, God instead graciously invites us to come in and receive from him the remedy that he knows that we need. Perhaps if the people or the preacher or the music or the chairs or the relationships or the conversations or whatever are not on your list of remedies, you say, but God, that's not what I need right now. And God graciously and lovingly bids you come. 
It says, trust me. Trust me that I'm the one that formed your heart and knows your heart and knows you better than you know yourself. This is the house of God when we enter. We are, we are summoned week in week out, and week out to quiet our hearts and enter before the grand and glorious presence of God to hear him speak. But it's, it's more, than not, more than that. It's not the, the buildings of the program, but the people, the pastors, the shepherds. This is the church. This is the bride of Jesus. And friends, Jesus is going to jealously guard and protect his bride. Friends, we have... Um, we live in a world, especially so now with the connection that the internet brings and social media and everything else, where it is easy to critique everything. It's easy to critique too in the church, isn't it? It's easy to say all the things that would or could or should be better. But beloved, you are part of the bride. If the spirit of Christ is in you, you are part of the bride. Whenever someone comes to me for marriage counseling and they're not willing to look at one another and jointly own that they themselves are the biggest problem in their marriage, I know we're going to have a long road ahead of us. Friends, listen, I am the biggest problem in the church. And you are too. None of us get the privilege or the luxury of sitting outside the lines and lobbing critiques at the church. We're all part of the church. It is all of us together. And friends, it is this church, this union, that God has drawn us into to make us into something that we could not be otherwise. But that requires an honest conversation, doesn't it? In Donald Miller's book, Blue Light Jazz, he speaks of a time in college when he and several friends were, um, there was a, a large kind of campus-wide party that was getting ready to happen. And so he and his friends wanted to do something. And so here's what they did. They, um, they gathered together and they decided that in the midst of the, the drunkenness and the dancing and the loud music and everything else, that they were going to go into the middle of the, uh, of the campus and set up a confessional booth. And so the day came, the party kicked off, and someone actually stepped foot into the confessional booth. And before they could get any words out, Miller and his friends began to confess to the person who sat down all the ways that they as Christians had sinned against their classmates on campus by being judgmental by being closed-hearted. At first, some people didn't know what was happening. But still others reacted with tears to see a vulnerability and an honesty of Christians instead of inviting people to come and make their peace with the church. The church came to make their peace with the people. 
What would it look like, friends? What would it look like for us rather rather than being the ones who are aghast and angered and appalled by the world around us to draw towards the world in redemptive love as Jesus did with us? Ecclesiastes invites us into our common humanity with our friends and our neighbors, looking and longing for community. We can say with sad resignation, the church is an imperfect animal. The Bible acknowledges that the church is a mess this side of the sun. But the it thing that we're looking for, the it thing that we're looking for will not be found outside the family of God. It will not be found outside of the church. It's rather by walking in wisdom and generosity of spirit, humbly, that we agree with our neighbors of the critiques of the imperfect people that the church is. But it's still in the great words of the church's one foundation that we find our yes and amen. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, we wait the consummation of peace forevermore till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Yet she on earth hath union with God the three in one and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. O happy ones and holy Lord, give us grace that we like them, the meek and the lowly, on high may dwell with thee. All of us have something in common this day beyond the spirit of Jesus. All of us have seen the unpleasant, the imperfect, and at times ugly side of the church. But friends, hear this. Jesus, in seeing that side of us, Jesus, in seeing that side of us, instead of running away or finding a different people to cast his affections on, instead drew near. And he gave his life. And in rising from the dead and ascending into heaven, he poured out his spirit. And he said, this people is mine. I'm never going to let her go. Dear friends, we are a messy work in progress, but we belong to Jesus, and we're his bride, and divorce is not an option.